This is our Suburb Trends Report for September 2020 and we'll be looking at where prices are moving across the country, either up or down, and why they're moving. In this episode, we'll be discussing the latest lending and mortgage stats as well as how Kent's been using machine learning to refine his hot and cold suburbs lists. The housing market seems to be doing quite well across the board. You know, there's only unless you're in one of those regions that we've selected, i.e., the eight percent of areas, um, it, it doesn't look bad as a, a housing market at all. It's the it's the unit market. The um, the question I have is how much impact we have um, when one market starts to fall. You know, they're, they're not there's not a clear line of separation between. Um, houses and units if one suffering it will impact the other equally especially in the rental market we see that there's a bit of a, a stronger correlation between unit rental housing rental welcome to the elephant in the room this is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about i'm veronica morgan real estate agent buyer's agent co-host of foxtel's location 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 australia and author of auction ready and i'm chris bates mortgage broker and i'm the data geek kent lardner before we get started i need to let you know that nothing we say on here can be taken as personal advice we always recommend you engage the services of a professional don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website as well as download our free full or forecaster report which experts can you trust to get it right the elephant in the room.com.au as usual we're going to do a deep dive into the suburbs where prices are most likely to go north or south in the very near future but before we do that kent what are these geeky tweaks you've been making to your methodology yeah one of the paid gigs that I do is uh, some forecasting and modelling for JLL. I th thought I'd get in the, uh, the plug for them. Um, <laughs> what we do is we do a, a regional level forecast using machine learning. You know, what does that look like? We take time series data, panel data, which is uh, lots of property information. Uh, we couple that with rental market information. We couple that with census information, even though that's a little bit older and we'll let the machine do its thing. And what it does is it spins up hundreds and hundreds of different models that work different ways in different locations with the objective of forecasting in advance three months out what the inventory levels will be like. So what we've done is a couple of, couple of key things. The reason why we use SA3s for that is there's a lot less volatility within the region. So if you do it at a suburb level, there's a lot of volatility month to month in the suburb, so it doesn't really work. We tried that at uh, the next step up, which is the uh, SA2. Again, a lot of volatility. When we started to introduce, when I introduced the SA3, it was a lot smoother and it, the model started to predict a lot, lot better. So we're using SA3s. And then what we do is we adopt that as a model to filter out and select the regions that are in or out in the hot list or the cold list. And then we look at the suburbs individually. So has this, I guess what I'm curious about with the actual machine learning is because, you know, it basically will throw up reasons that we not be, may not be aware of, right? Or, it, yeah? It does. And there, are, there, are a, there is a tendency for overfitting with a lot of these models. Mm -hmm. So you need to be rather cautious. Um, it can sometimes give you insights that you're not aware of. It will find patterns in the data that, you would struggle to do yourself. But before you accept anything as gospel, you really want to look at this, the, the regions and the suburbs individually to give it a sanity check because of that overfitting. Yeah, because we can't give all of our faith to the machine, right? Is that what you're saying? No, no. <laughs> and and, and you've, got, you've got a couple of problems uh, or challenges. One of them is that you've got uh, data blips and data anomalies you need to look for. So if you put in some dodgy data, it'll fit to the dodgy data. But equally, the models have a tendency to um, fit against spurious uh, data sets as well. So you need to look at all of those things and use it as a tool. Just to make so sure. I mean, that's one of the things that these uh, lists or top 10 suburbs that have grown or um, that are likely to grow, very often you look at those and there's usually a reason behind a few of them that, just don't make sense. Veronica, you said it a lot on the podcast where you've looked at these things and it's just, you know, the median's risen because of lots of new stock or 
there's been lots of price growth in the median because there's been very few number of sales or etc so what you're saying ken is the machine will do lots of the searching for us but we still need to go dig deep on a suburb level and figure out what's happening on the ground yeah i, I don't like using medians i wrap it on <laughs> about that a lot um, <laughs> but specifically you can use medians wisely at an sa3 level um, mm. yeah, more often than not a change in the median at an sa3 level does reflect uh, a shift in values at a suburb level, it more reflects a, a shift in what's selling at the time, as we've covered. So mm -hmm. it's that compositional problem. Um, but the SA3 price median does seem to work rather well as an index. However, for you to rely upon the price index at that regional level, you need to look at the distribution, see if it's that upside-down bell or that bell-shaped curve. Yeah. Uh, so if it's a normal distribution throughout the different time periods, it's a pretty damn good index. Um, what we are doing though is we're forecasting inventory, um, which is slightly different, very correlated, but slightly different. Yeah, and it's it's a I guess it's the leading indicator to prices, right? Yeah. Yeah. So let's look at the data, Kent, the cold spots and where things are warming up, starting with listings for houses. I noticed the top two suburbs in the hot list currently have zero listings. That might account for why they're there. Imagine the competition when even one hits the market in those areas. Yeah, one of the things we look at, we, we try and filter out suburbs that have a, a reasonable sales volume on average. Um, so they get in because of their sales history, their monthly average, there is there are sales volumes there. Um, but what we found is uh, a limitation or, or very reduced volume of, of listings at the moment. So to your point, some of these suburbs uh, get in because historically they have some sales volume, but right now they're, they're all tight. And that's across the board. We've seen a, a significant drop in the number of listings. So uh, if you compare it to 12 months ago, we are down. I think I just did a I did a, a little bit of a, a summary of it, and we are down in total listings for houses across the country. Um, we're down 13% on where we were same time 12 months ago. So I think mm. that's, that's a good summation of, of what's going on. There's a, a reduction in that. Um, against 24 months ago, it's only down 7%, uh, but um, I remember a lot of people complaining of what was happening in the market 24 months ago. Things mm. were were very, very few listings uh, two years ago. Yeah, I mean, that was 2018. So that was when, you know, the Sydney market was probably down 10%. You know, a lot of people were fearful, right? The, it's when all the doomsday 40% talk was going on. Um, so, but I mean, I think you'd have to look at the listings data now with a little bit of um, apprehension. Obviously, COVID um, and the second lockdown in Melbourne I think if you look at Sydney listings, maybe they're still pretty strong, but Melbourne's listings like must be just falling off a cliff right now when you look at the state level. Do you... That's true. Um, the the Melbourne situation uh, with vacancy rates with a lot of things um, yeah. are standouts. So, you know, uh, vacancy rates is, a, is probably a really good example of what's happening in the market. And uh, across the country, vacancy rates have, have actually dropped but they've spiked in, in Melbourne. So uh, I think that's a, a that's a really good lead indicator. So, for example, I'm just looking at it here. Pardon me, I'll look at the screen. Um, you know, overall, you've dropped down from 1.8% overall in your median for the for the capital cities, 1.8% last month down to 1.6%. So it's a significant drop. However, mm. Melbourne's jumped up to 5.7%, up from 46 so, but the problem with Melbourne or considering Melbourne in anything at the minute is that um, whereas the previous lockdown we all still transacted, you know, yes, auctions were banned, but basically you could still inspect properties, you could still buy properties, you could still move house, you could still, you know, get out there and rent something new, all that could still happen. There, so there was a sort of a, a confidence crisis in terms of people thinking, well, what's gonna, what is going to happen and will this stop? And now obviously in the most recent lockdown in Melbourne, that all has stopped. So it's no surprise mm. that vacancy is going to go up because anything that was vacant at the beginning cannot be relet in this period. So, um, you know, and I actually, I really feel for any landlords that have been stuck there because that would be very, very painful. But um, so how useful, I guess, is Melbourne data at the minute? 
Yeah, it's upside down. So yeah, listings are down. I just looked at the numbers down. The, you know, they're down by about oh, about fifteen hundred less listings across the greater city at the moment for houses. So mm-hmm. um, down, but it's not significantly down. There's still a number of listings out there, but just there's no activity. No. Yeah, that's yeah. So there's lots of not many probably new listings, but there's not a lot of listings going off the scenes because no one's buying because yeah. you know you got to be pretty. Uh, courageous to be buying a property without uh, going through it. Um, I think uh, lots of people would want to buy properties when they look on domain or real estate until they rock up and do one walkthrough, Veronica. There's been lots of times you've walked through properties and you got excited about it when you looked at it before you went and then you got there and you were like, "Uh uh-oh, how did they make that look so good? Photoshop. Yeah, Photoshop, yeah. wide-angle lenses, uh, and you know, judicious, judiciously, uh, you know, I, I always think of that um, the image of the house with a massive big water tank behind it. And if you mm. take a photo of the house, it's, you can see the water tank. It's so obvious. But if you go out in the middle of the street and crouch and take a photo of the house, the water tank is obscured behind the house. <laughs> so, <laughs> and Google Earth would tell you that story, but yeah. still, it's ridiculous to buy a site unseen. Okay, so in the in the top five houses uh list you know it's interesting three out of the five are in newcastle slash lake macquarie one in wollongong and one in karingai which is sort of a very leafy part of sydney um and it's i recently just went on a holiday where i spent a couple of nights actually just outside of um, newcastle in mate uh, just out near maitland um and then went up to the hinterland of, of byron bay and each you know, talking to people about property prices and this, and who's buying property up there, and how quickly properties are being sold, and then it very recently talking to a number of people um, about the, and the sight unseen as well that's going on. And this is this is in New South Wales where people can travel, they can go and look at these properties, and yet they're still not. Um, you know that that sort of regional um, push seems to be quite busy at the minute and quite real in the sense that it's not just people looking, they're actually transacting. Yeah, um, the, the broader regions, yeah, we've got uh, Newcastle, Lake Macquarie East and Lake Macquarie West, uh, Wollongong and Karingot. So, um, you know, they all are just on the outskirts. And, um, yeah. you know, so there's a, a lot of, uh, a lot of the fundamental data is really, really strong for these areas. So your inventory levels are quite low. The only question I have is um, inventory level for Lake Macquarie West is a little bit higher than those other regions I've mentioned. It's up around four months, but that's still low. Um, but by and large, Newcastle, Lake Macquarie, East Wollongong have done extraordinarily well. And I guess then there's also... Um your top 20 houses, right? And I noticed there are 14 of those suburbs are in New South Wales and then you've got three in, in South Australia, three in Tasmania. What do you think is going on there? Nothing in Queensland, nothing. Well, it's sort of no surprise, I guess, nothing in WA or Northern Territory, nothing in the ACT, um, nothing in Victoria. That's maybe no surprise as well. But what's, what is the story there, do you think? Yeah, I'd probably say more that we've got a lot of air, a lot of these areas, um, a lot of these regions. Pick on Victoria, for example. If you look at the, the map of Victoria, um, it's all very good, but not great because of the lockdown situation. So there's nothing really, really bad through Victoria. So very hard to pick bad regions. Uh, it's just this situation with the uh, the lockdown. We need to probably get six months out of lockdown for the data to start to make sense again. But the map for Victoria looks quite quite good. Uh, it's just not bubbling to the top at the moment. Um, if we look at the map of, say, Queensland, there are a few good pockets. Um, I look around Capalabar and a few of those locations just south of Brisbane, quite solid. So what we're doing is we've got a, a list here that we, we, we're trying to pick the, the top just to, to talk to for the show, but that doesn't mean that we don't have a lot of solid regions. And by and large, mm. the bulk of Australian regions, uh, specifically for the housing markets, are doing very, very well. Mm. And when you say specifically on the housing market, is that because you're seeing a completely different story in the unit market and, uh, you know, and it's com- investors i guess would look at the same suburb and say well actually houses are very low but the units in that area are potentially extremely high for supply yeah exactly so just to sum that up i just looked at my notes 75 percent of the regions that we analyze are all very very low risk for houses so they look solid so that sums up the, the market eight uh, percent 
I would consider high risk wow. across. So that's of that's of about uh, just over three hundred uh, regions that we analyse for houses. So it's 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 pretty solid. Yeah, and before we get to units, let's talk about those high-risk areas. You know, I mean, there was one actually, the worst-performing suburb on your list or the coldest spot is uh, a place called Gura, how do you name it, Gyra? Gyra in Armandale, Western New South Wales. I looked it up, known for fat lambs and potatoes. Population (laughs) 2,000, 61 houses currently on the market, and on average it takes 143 days to sell each one of them. But these listings are all established homes, not pages of newly released house and land packages, which is what we've been talking about in in the last couple of episodes. So I wonder what the hell's going on there. Well, I did my magic Twitter and Facebook search, so just trying to get a thread of what people are commenting on, you know, trolling and spying. But uh, uh, the only thing that I could uncover uh, with my limited desktop research was uh, there was a significant water problem about a year ago, mm. but now now the dams are full. So right. I wonder if I wonder if there's a correlation there. I wouldn't know until you know. We probably do need to talk to somebody up there. But a year ago, the headlines were reading. Uh, that there was a, a water crisis. So when you uh, when you say a water crisis, we know there was a drought. Is that in that particular area? Did they have a problem with access to water? Problem. They had a right. problem with access. Um, but now the latest tweets are complaining about take take away our water restrictions now because the dam is full. <laughs> mm. So there's still no wow. water restrictions, but the dam is full. Mm. Isn't it crazy how the area you know a bit of droughts for. It completely transforms the area and then a bit of rain comes and then, you know, it's back to business a little bit, right? And so, you know, it sounds like a lot of people couldn't hang on and, you know, had to list their properties and... Yeah, well, that's the dark depressing. Yeah, it is, it is. But it it highlights Australia, doesn't it? Mm, It does. You mentioned Morton Bay. It's funny to see that as well. Veronica, you were saying that when you're on your travels, you're finding that Sydney siders are buying sight unseen. We're starting to see clients that would usually send us, you know, we're thinking about buying an investment property in Brisbane or Melbourne or are now sending us Mudgee or Central Coast or, you know, they're really, and, you know, they haven't really spent that much time in these areas and um, haven't seen the properties and they're getting excited before they even see them and they're hard to go and, you know, do day trips there or go and see a, something. So it's really interesting how you know, there's not that many investors out there, but a lot of the investors who typically would go for a capital city are also trying to, you know, buy these hot spots, I guess, outside the city. So it's it's, it's going to be interesting to see if that trend continues. Well, the vacancy was... rates are solid, yeah. The, the vacancy rates in these outer regions look better. The yields can look better as well. Mm. Mm. But then their capital growth usually suffers, you know, when you've got good yield, and that's the thing, isn't it? I mean, I was talking yeah. to someone only today about buying apartments in Armadale, and I'm like, why would you buy an apartment? Yeah, you know, like, I don't know the market yeah. that well. So, but the questions I would be asking is, who would be renting an apartment in Armadale? You know, is it only students? And if it's only students, you've got one type of tenant and that's highly risky. Is it is it lower socioeconomic groups, in which case that's also risky? Is, if any time you've only got one, one sort of typical demographic that is going to be your typical tenant, then you don't have that diversity, which gives you, you know, spreads your risk, basically. Um, and how common is an apartment in a country town? You know, I don't know the answer to that, but these are the questions you should be asking um, before going, oh, God, you know, how cheap I could buy a whole building, you know, I could buy three apartments for 750000 It's so cheap. It's like, yes, because you're thinking with Sydney, you know, with a Sydney mindset, it's cheap and cheap. Yeah, in terms of buying some bricks and mortar, it's very different to cheap in terms of buying an investment. You know, it's got, it's, it, it amazes me that people got that much money to spend and they still think about it in those terms. But anyway. Um, well, that's you the hard are, thing is it's hard to get relativ- relativity um, mm. in that market. So, you know, you think for 800000 that's a lot of house, that's a lot of land for that money. But what you actually should be doing in that market, am I getting great value for money? Is this a a great property within that market, is it scarce, et cetera. And when you compare it to the local lens, um, you might be going, God, for an extra 300000 we can get this property or extra 200000 we get this or an extra, you know, and that's where I think, uh, you know, I think a lot of people are looking at, say, for example, the Central Coast and, you know, maybe around a million dollars, you don't get that much. But if you've, say, got 1.5, you go to a whole other ballpark, you go to an acreage or you go for a beachfront or, etc and so 
it's all about relativity in that market. But unfortunately, um, you know, a lot of investors look to invest outside of where they are or exactly where they live. And uh, it's the danger when you, you do both things, to be honest. <laughs> you use the, the term scarcity and that's what I worry about a lot of the, specifically the, the medium density stuff outside of the cities. Um, even on the outskirts of Brisbane, uh, I remember my first property I bought was a, a townhome down in Wellington Point and you blink and there's another set of townhomes being built because all they had to do was buy one big old Queenslander on a big block. So the supply was constant. As soon as that market started to heat up, supply ramped up to match it. So that's what I worry about, the, the, the medium, median density strata space outside of the cities. Mm. I, worry about, I worry about strata and apartments full stop. Well, we yeah. are going to get to that in a minute. You, do, you also, um, in your notes that we looked at before this uh, recording this, you mentioned Moreton Bay is a good cold spot to talk about. North yeah, of Brisbane. A danger zone, you call it. Tell us well, more. Yeah, there's a couple of suburbs that are, uh, are in oversupply for that very reason. So the, so the whole region, uh, you know, the region is Bribey Beachmere. It's an SA3 region, but it's been impacted by three specific suburbs. Now, I hope I'm pronouncing them properly. Uh, Wurram, uh, Bonagree and Ballara. So they've all got higher levels of inventory, which is our standard go-to. Um, across the board, though, if you look at that region, um, uh, it's about 75, 76% houses, which is good. Not an oversupply of rental properties in terms of rental tenure. It's about 27%, so slightly below the national average. Um, so there's nothing extraordinary there other than uh, unemployment rate is a bit higher. So it's up around 7.6%. At the moment, you know, I kind of drawing the line and starting to get worried above the national average, which is creeping up. But you know, at the moment, I'm saying above 5.5%. Is that a concern? Mm-hmm. Income levels are low, and I think that's more correlated to the fact that you've got a very – it's an ageing community there, so your most common age bracket is over 65. So it's a, a retirement area. It's a you know, low, yeah. lower socioeconomic, it looks like, based on – um, the, the top five occupations, et cetera. So, uh, you know, it's an area that I would be cautious about buying an apartment in. It, or a house? Would you be cautious well, about buying a house there as well? Yeah, well, the housing market seems to be doing quite well across the board, you know. there's only Unless you're in one of those regions that we've selected, i.e. the 8% of areas, um, it doesn't look bad as a, a housing market at all. It's the it's the unit market. The um, the question I have is how much impact we have um, when one market starts to fall. You know, they're, they're not there's not a clear line of separation between mm. um, houses and units. If one's suffering, it will impact the other. Equally, especially in the rental market, we see that there's a bit of a, a stronger correlation between unit rental, housing rental. Yeah, there's also, I mean, when you look in the cold spots for houses, though, there are all the usual suspects in there, which is, you know, the Oran Park, Astral's, um, Rouse Hill, you know, they're all pretty permanent fixtures. And so that's why we're not going to labour the point and talk about the same suburbs every time we, we meet. <laughs> but, yeah. um, but, you know, so in terms of housing, I just, we probably need to just sort of distinguish between existing and new or recently built um, when we say that, because, you know, the, there's huge amounts of inventory in those areas. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, but I, the point is, obviously, the holding costs for the developers is low because it's a patch of dirt with a rendered image of a house. Mm. So the, the, the risk is more for those people who want, who need to sell or want to sell who've mm. already bought in a year or two or three ago. So mm. obviously, uh, they will be doing it tough. And, you know, you only have to look through, you'll find a few listings in there that are a year or more old that are trying to compete against all those government incentives and new stock. Very mm. tough, very tough for the secondary market. Yeah, so I've seen um, the whole Moreton Bay region is, uh, you know, it's to the north of Brisbane. You've also got Ipswich to the west and yep. then you've got Logan to the south. And these three areas, we've spoken a bit about Logan, you know, the oversupply problems with new housing down there, yeah. um, the growth corridor between uh, Brisbane and Gold Coast. And we've seen a lot, I've seen a lot of investors sort of buy houses in that area. Same as Ipswich, where you, um, and they're around three, 400,000, and they've been that for 10 years. And um, a lot of buyers' agents have uh, recommended people those areas, and they're highly risky, and they always come up in your data. 
My other worry with Brisbane is this Moreton Bay area because I've also seen people, you know, places like Warner, Kalinga, North Lake, Deception Bay, there are also lots of new house and land packages in the same story as Logan, et cetera. And um, it's just, it's a very, it's the same problem, you know, all sides of Brisbane because a lot of investors have gone there because it's, you know, Queensland lifestyle, it's affordable, it's three, 400,000. Um, and people go and buy not one, but they buy three or four in these areas. And um, I just worry, you know, even on the, I know you say units, um, Kent, but I would say the houses are still extremely, um, got a massive supply risk. And when you say numbers like unemployment, unfortunately, this sort of downturn's really shown that unemployment's not evenly split. It, it does affect some areas harder than others. And generally, it is those younger people um, and, you know, the outer suburbs, unfortunately. So it's it's definitely a real area to watch, I think, as well as Ipswich and Logan. A lot of these aren't new phenomena. Um, if yeah. you go back, if you look at the, the LMI policy guidelines or security location guides are a really good insight to what's been happening over the last 20 or 30 years because that there, there's reasons why certain postcodes get on their Category 3 list or their high risk list. So I'd always recommend have a look at those. Now, I don't have them in front of me, so I can't quote them immediately, but it's a good reference because I remember a lot of those areas, Chris, that you just mentioned, we've paid a lot of big claims over the years in yep. those, those locations. Is that publicly available, that, that yeah, uh, yeah. data? Yeah, so, so on our QBE, have, have it published under, uh, I think, I'm trying to remember what they call it, but uh, Gemworth calls call theirs the security location guide. So I think it's a, to, a really yeah. handy reference, and we might cover that in a future. It's a funny thing. It's yeah. a the default. Um, so what gets an LMI claim is a default on a mortgage, right? And then that goes to the lender's mortgage um, sort of insurer. And what you know, RBA did a sort of report recently, and it basically said that people who are uh, in positive equity um, have a much lower default rate, and then those people who are in negative equity, which makes sense, right? Mm. Um, and so, but what it kind of shows is that areas where there potentially is negative equity issues, which is new stock, um, are also more likely to default on their mortgage. Um, and so you're going to start, to, you know, what it kind of basically shows is that it compounds the problem, right? If you've got lots of people in negative equity, then you've got lots of people fire selling with sort of defaults. It's like a double whammy and... Um, I think that's the big worry with these things. If, if you start to see price falls and you start to see negative equity and you start seeing defaults, you start seeing fire sales and then it's like a race to the bottom. Well, that's the problem with a, a new estate or a, or, yeah. a new, or a new apartment block. Um, everyone's coming in and there's a, a, a higher proportion of people who are buying with a mortgage mm-hmm. than yeah. an established suburb. Um, so you've got an influx of people who come in all exposed to the same economic risks. Yeah. Uh, and then and then when when things get tough, a lot of them are forced to sell at the same time. And I recall um, four claims in one small street in Sawtell or just south of Sawtell, um, mm. you know, because it was a, a new, a small estate. Uh, everyone moved in in one fell swoop and we had four claims in one street. Um, and that's happened time and again. Really sad, isn't it? It's it's awful. Now, what I mean, you highlighted a few other suburbs to talk about. You know, there's Merriweather Heights, uh, Mangerton, yeah. Voga Beach, yeah. Adelaide City. Let's have a quick chat about those. Let's, Let's start with um, Merriweather Heights is a is an interesting one because I'm familiar with. It. I drive past it a fair bit, but um, well, we know you always yeah. chuck a Newcastle suburb in there. I've got my my thumb on the scale here. Um, so it's, it's an interesting market because there's two distributions. Uh, it's not a beachside suburb, but it's a beach view or a water view suburb. So typically you'll see two distributions in prices, those with the views and those without. Um, there's not enough units in there to really worry about. It's 97% housing. Uh, rental property is very, very low. So it's an 8.7%. So not, mm. not a lot of rentals. Um, and I think there's some of the things that there's some of the foundations as to why an area is really interesting. Um, so uh, yields are not bad either, uh, 4.2% for houses. So, you know, that's, that's pretty good. I look, I look at a lot of areas that are you know, down 
below mm. three and a half. Uh, un- unemployment rate for the SA2, which is kind of the, the, the couple of suburbs in and around it, is 1.5%. So that's, wow. yeah, that's extraordinary. Um, mm. Income level, household income, 2.17, you know, so just over two grand. It's quite significant. Yeah. Full of professionals and managers, um, so that's the number one uh, occupation is uh, professionals is 37.8%. So that's pretty big. Uh, age brackets even spread a lot of families, um, you know, high proportion of um, uh, under people under 19. So it's a, a family suburb very yeah. much. Um, and, uh, again, there's not a lot of rents, but if you do need to rent there, it's $750 on average. So... Um, it's not a not a cheap place to rent either, so it's um it's good. But uh, properties come on and they disappear, and they will because um, you know I've got a client trying to buy there at the moment. To be honest, uh, whether it's there, or whether the Junction or Merriweather or Adamstown Heights, um, mm. they're all in that little pocket. And growing up in Newcastle, not far from New Kent. Um, that's the, you know, it's arguably the best place to live in Newcastle, right? And Zania, you've got beach on one side, you've got the city, you know, the town, um, you know, great walking and, you know, it's just get all the lifestyle benefits of living in Newcastle. What I think is going to be interesting, yeah, a lot of the locals probably, um, you know, times are tough there as well. Coal price drives drive a lot of the sort of Newcastle market. Um, but what I think is happening is a lot of young couples in Sydney that, are now starting to get to that family stage and now falling back in love with Newcastle and then going back to Newcastle with their Sydney incomes and mm. works allowing them to do a commute from Newcastle, which wasn't possible prior to COVID. Um, and so that's a prime example of what one of our clients is doing. So they're, they're, they're moving back, and they're, but they're still keeping their Sydney income. And so you're getting Sydney income in Newcastle and that wasn't happening just till the last six months. So... Yeah. Um, but everyone living so they, they've got more borrowing capacity than the locals. So if they were doing their job in in Newcastle, they would probably be earning you know 60 percent less, right? And so you know they, they're going with Sydney borrowing capacity uh, and then basically pushing out the locals. So um, yeah, it's, it's a funny it's a funny dynamic that COVID's allowing that sort of you know Newcastle locals to go back. True. And, um, and I'm guessing from what you've said there as well that it would be one of those suburbs that if the market did fall, you know, on 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 a grander scale, that there'd always be local buyers that want to buy there, right? Everyone in Newcastle would love to live at Merriweather. Like, right. would you it agree? It is Merriweather Pam? Heights, not Merriweather. No, is, no, it, is it poor man's Merriweather? <laughs> well, it's funny you say that. I talked to some of the people who are kind of in the 60 age, 60 years and older bracket, and they said there was a period where Merriweather Heights was the go-to. That was the preference mm. over Merriweather. And there's a, a lot of properties that have been built in the 60s, 70s, I think so, or 50s, 60s, 70s. So, you can obviously see what's happened. It was new. It was exciting. Um, you know, so that's probably what happened. Um, but there's a lot of renovation work going on in and around mm-hmm. Merriweather right now. So, um, you know, those the Merriweather through to um, you know, Newcastle East. There's a, there's some really expensive real estate there. I really like Cooks Hill. Oh, so do I. Hill Cooks Hill. Yeah, if yeah. I was going to move to Newcastle, that's where I'd be moving. <laughs> yeah, get you. <laughs> Yeah, Cooks Hill is exactly that's like next door, right? So you've got like Merriweather, Cooks Hill, you've got Derby Street, etc. So it's all like walk around on the mm-hmm. beach, the cafes, etc. So um, yeah, it's a very special part of Newcastle. It's a completely different market, and what I think is going to drive that market though is Sydney people that have left Newcastle and are going back, and um, mm. or or people because it's 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 not the commutable. It's a big call to move to Newcastle. Right, the central coast, you feel like you're still part of Sydney, but mm. Newcastle, you know, it's, it's a mission to get back to Sydney. So you've got to really, it's a big call to move there. Chris, that's a segue to Avoca Beach. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the next one on the list is Avoca Beach. Um, so very distinct two price distributions because you do have the waterside um, properties, mm-hmm. the beachside properties. So um, yeah, a significant spike in, in percentage. So, you know, well over 10% of the properties sell over $2 million. So it's it's not a cheap uh, suburb. 
Um, but there's a, there, there are an abundance of properties in and around that eight to 800 to 1 million mark back from the beach. So it's still relatively affordable, right, compared to Sydney. So if you were exiting Sydney and you wanted a beachside suburb, it's not a bad option. Um, unit prices, there's, um, you know, there's some, some units there. Again, a lot of those seem to be focused on, on water views, so they're mm. more prestigious. Um, uh, just under 84% houses, so it's still dominated by freestanding houses. Rental properties, um, just under 19%, so again, not dominated by, by rentals. Yields Although are a bit lower. You do have a lot of um, holiday homes there, so how do you sort of pull that apart, pull that out of it? Yeah, um, I think what they do is they, well, no, what I know they do with the census is it's the people in the house at the time to tell you mm. whether it's a rental. So uh, they're the only properties that get calculated as a, as a rental. So is, is, and with the census, just as a curiosity here, so basically if everyone's in their normal home in Sydney, for argument's sake, and nobody's sitting in their holiday home on census night, um, then a lot of those houses won't get captured, right? Not counted. Mm. So you've got to be in the property. Does that the cause night. a problem with the data? Um, I think as long as it's a statistically relevant sample, it's not really an issue. You know, because, it, you, because it, oh, and the reason I ask that is because if say eighteen percent are rented, and the tenants are more likely to be occupying the homes on census night. Mm. So you're capturing the data of the tenant population, not of the owner population. Correct. And they're the ones telling you what it rented for. Mm. So, you know, it's a great little tool that I've just deployed looking at the relative rental price for the SA1, which is that little neighbourhood pocket, relative to the SA2 and then Mm. make an adjustment whether it's a higher rental or lower rental for that neighbourhood and then I just apply that same adjustment factor to today's SA2 median, um, and I put that on the website. And you can, it's a really interesting to see, and the bulk of the adjustments are all within 30%. So it looks like a half-reasonable metric, but uh, that's, there's some interesting things that come off census. The other interesting thing is um, I'm, I'm about to apply or use the total number of properties in each area that's tracked quarter by quarter by quarter, by the government, uh, part of the geocoded national address file. So that's a beautiful thing is you can then index up uh, and make adjustments to the census data, which is pretty old now, right, 2016. Mm. But you can say uh, how many properties were in the suburb in 2016 and how much has that changed according to this count of properties that the government does. Interesting. Uh, but if you're just sort of labouring the point on the census for a minute. So if you're looking at, say, income data, you're looking at um, employment data, all that sort of stuff that comes out of the census, then and you might be looking at a, a suburb like Avoca Beach, it's you're not really capturing a true sense of you're only capturing the occupants, the full time occupants. You're not necessarily capturing what's driving that market, right? Yeah. The un- yeah. The the unoccupied home and. I haven't given a lot of thought to it, so I'm not. I'm not going to be able to give you a really assertive. Mm. I think in the like uh, twenty in the GFC, you know, up where I am, up in the sort of peninsula, of, you know, Palm Beach, let's say, um, got absolutely smashed. Um, yeah, because a lot of people offloaded their holiday homes when mm. things got tough, right? Um, and so you saw massive price falls. It's interesting with this pandemic sort of situation. You kind of wish you had a holiday home, right? And so, yeah. uh, and with the change from work from home, um, is also saying, well, actually, I should live at my holiday home and come to the city, you know, rather than mm. before that wasn't. So, I think that's what's probably potentially not driving people just shifting their holiday homes like they would have potentially done that in the GFC. People are like, actually, that's what I really want to do. Um, but Evokers definitely, we um, we had a trickle of people buying in the Central Coast over you know the last five or six years not that many um you know because they they went there in 2015 16 because they got gave up with sydney and then the market cooled off in 17 18 so they're like oh i don't want to buy anything um and then in 18 19 they're like actually now i can still afford in sydney um and but now i guess we're starting to see lots of clients buy um you know your minor kill care um we had a client buying wombrel on the weekend um uh, etc so you know but they're all probably going there with sydney budgets again they're yeah. going there they're not going there with a million dollars they're going for 1.5 and 
you know, they've got an acreage and, in Warbrook. And, um, often, and often Sydney price relativity in their heads too. They find it very difficult to, to really separate their, oh, my God, this is a bargain because they're comparing it with Sydney prices rather than actually with local prices, which is always dangerous. Yeah. But you get caught up in that. It's interesting, though, you mentioned with the holiday houses, the, the, the volatility of these holiday home-centric areas is something that's I've always noticed. Mm-hmm. So Nelson Bay was always a standout, full of holiday mm-hmm. home. And yeah. over the last 20 years, whenever I've watched it, you know, it would move into oversupply rapidly. So, mm-hmm. you know, I remember covering it, at, you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, when um, there was massive amounts of inventory. Every time the market went down a bit, um, there'd be a pylon. Interesting. Mm. <laughs> Adelaide City. Yeah, Adelaide City was, um, again, it's, it's, it's like the other cities where we've got uh, higher vacancy rates due to apartments, but very low number of houses. So, um, you know, again, it's, it's your stereotypical inner city area, right? You've mm. got, you know, high, high density areas that are uh, markets that are suffering, whether it be Melbourne or Sydney or Brisbane or, or Adelaide. Um, so, yes, it is suffering from higher vacancy rates and um, the associated higher inventory levels of uh, apartments. And Mangerton was another one on your list. It was. That's on the good list. Um, right. So, uh, interesting uh, suburb. Again, two distributions because of views. Where, where is it? Is it in WA? Well, no, it's it's down in, uh, in Wollongong, just um, ah. adjacent to the freeway there at Wollongong. Uh, with views I've out to never the heard of it. Neither have I. But, it, you know, Chris looked at it on the map for me because I said, where is this? <laughs> and and he said, this is beautiful. It's, you know, leafy and it looks out to this garment. But, um, uh, the, you know, the numbers, the numbers look uh, interesting. Um, and uh, there's a few properties to look at. One of them that I saw listed was um, a whole block of units. I think it was two units, a duplex. Mm. Whole block. <laughs> um, yeah, the whole block. Um, I think it was listed for around a million bucks. So it looked, looked not too bad at all. Oh, um, you're applying um, Newcastle thinking in this one. <laughs> I want, yeah, absolutely. But there are a number of expensive properties in there. So, mm. you know, some of the properties sold, you know, I'm looking at a number of streets there up to 2.5 million. So it's a, a mixed bag of, of, of uh, price ranges in that location. Yeah, so, so what happening down there we're saying is there's nothing available north of Wollongong in the mm. beachside suburbs like the rules etc Ostermere, Scarborough, all those places yeah there's nothing and um you know even the poor properties are going for big prices and uh, a lot of the buyers have been looking for months and months and months they feel like they've missed the boat a little bit because they're you know seeing a lot of the other people at the opens and there are a lot of other people like mm. them coming down from Sydney um and, and it's so commutable. What's that? It's commutable because of the train line along there. Because of the train line. But you look at this Mangerton, um, it's probably, I mean, you can't argue with the, the beauty of it, you know, tree-lined streets. It's like a uh, an upper North Shore sort of suburb right next to kind of Wollongong. So, um, yeah, if you wanted to get to the city, it's, you know, a couple of kilometres. There's a grammar school there. Um, you can see why if, if you can't buy in the north, um, it's actually not a bad place to be buying near Wollongong, right? So mm. uh, it's uh, it's interesting that, that that potentially, you know, a lot of the buyers may be going a bit further south and saying, hang on a sec, why don't we check out this suburb? So it doesn't surprise me at all. The bottom five unit suburbs are dominated by mining towns and coastal Queensland in particular. So that's that sort of holiday unit market. You know, other than that, what what interesting things have you sort of uncovering in the unit side of things? Yeah, um, well, you, you mentioned the mining town too. I, I found a property last week uh, in Morinbar where it's listed for a significant drop as to what what the person purchased for. But um, again, I think it's just generally um, the, the, you've got the inner city CBD areas. We know that. We know the cause of that. Just a uh, a, a lot of ex um, Airbnb, ex student mm. properties, but equally, I think a, an exodus from high density living. Um, and I, I think probably there's another couple of factors too, especially in and around Sydney, is build quality. Yeah, um, you know, people are worried about that. So, um, so that kind of sums up you know your Sydney and Melbourne. But as we move outside of those, it's just purely driven by the fact that um, you know there's a lot of available stock. 
and it's just pure and simple. You know, you get high density. The higher the density, the higher risk right now. The thing too, anecdotally, I've been hearing about, you know, agents sort of not wanting to list one-bedroom units, um, you know, and so, as I said, only anecdotally uh, and oh. studios, you know, and I guess that sort of is in line with what we are hearing is that, um, you know, people working from home, they don't want to be working on the dining room table, so they need a study or a second bedroom and particularly a studio apartment. You, you know, you live, if you're locked in, you go nuts. Um, yeah. So it, it's sort of interesting that, um, and, and that would go for tenants as well as owner-occupiers. Tenants are fortunate enough to be able to move out and if rents are falling and they're in a small apartment, they think, well, you know, well, the same rent, I can actually get a two-bedroom place. Well, why wouldn't you do it, you know? Um, so it's, yeah, have you, I mean, I guess, is there anything showing up about that that correlates with that or not yet? Well, where people are moving, it's more anecdotal. So I pick up on, you know, information by, you know, uh, looking at, Twitter comments. Um, actually, funny. I was, sitting, I was I was sitting in the hairdresser listening to um, the, the lady sitting next to me, and she was saying, "I can move out of Newcastle City and I can move down to Belmont and save a hundred dollars and get a three bedroom property with a yard for the same mm. price." And I think that maybe that just sums it up. Yeah. Mm. I think it probably does. Um, mm. And on one of your Twitter conversations that you were following was um, suggesting that. Um, that there could be a flood of sales with unlet rentals, um, you know, and potentially in this sort of unit space, if you've got the smaller apartments that are hard to rent, you know, they will be coming onto the market to sell. And then if those agents are seeing that flood, then they're going, well, bugger, it's too hard. I don't want it. <laughs> well, I remember the time when we, we drew a hard line in the sand of 50 square metres um, mm. when we were accepting um, for, for mortgage um, underwriting, now LMI. And um, we were challenged constantly, obviously, to try and accept stuff smaller. Um, so I went in and saw a studio in, um, uh, in the inner eastern suburbs of Sydney, and it was stunning. And based on that, I was influenced. I said, look, given their prime position, you know, we'll accept this one at below, it went below 40 square metres. So, you know, I think as, as demand pushed up, you picked the right spots, we lowered our guard and we, we, we started to accept these smaller and smaller um, uh, units because they were so beautiful and so well designed and so well positioned. So that's the, that's the backstory. And then what happens is one thing leads to another and you, you, you're letting these smaller and smaller properties through without that same degree of quality. It's also about affordability, isn't it? I mean, you know, if, um, because I've argued for it. I mean, my first apartment was 36 square metres. You know, it was in Newtown in Sydney. but um, yeah. And it was well designed and very well laid out. But, you know, there's only so long you could live there. And and then the rules changed and I had to sell it to buy a house because it was, as I said, under 50 square metres. But, you know, for many, I thought, well, a well-designed small apartment was a good way for people to get into a very expensive um, property market. And so yeah. a lot of those studios are in sort of pots Pointless with Bay. Well, that area. I forgot the name, and I just mm. remember it was Paddington. It was stunning. Yeah, so. and you know, and a lot of them are a, a fabulous lifestyle around. I just think that uh, we've all been a bit reminded um, that space is very important. Personal space is very important, um, and also if you can't get out, there's no point if you're being in a great area. Really, is there? Um, yeah. Now. You also did some interesting analysis on house listings by distance from the CBD. Yeah, Chris asked me to do this one. What did that turn up? Okay, I'm going to, where do we got it? We got, what do we got? Expired by distance, I call it in my little worksheet here. So, um, <laughs> so what, what we do is I, I look at the listings, have sampled, or how many do we got here? We've got about 17,000 house listings. Um, and then we, took the distance of the listing to the um, GPO. Yeah, mm. So we just focused on Sydney. Um, so we did the 0, 15 kilometres, 15 to 30 kilometres, 30 to 45 and 45 to 100. So we've gone, gone big on the last one. Um, what, what did we learn? What, what did we try and learn? We tried to find out wh whether uh, there were higher or lower volumes of expired listings uh, in each of those um, areas or inner ring, outer ring. Um, and it was, uh, we found that was the case. 24% uh, of the listings um, that we found uh, in the inner ring uh, had hit that 90-day mark. 
Mm-hmm. Um, now, a lot of those are uh, have already sold. They're just still appearing, uh, whatever. So it's a, a less of an absolute figure and better used as an as a comparative figure. Yeah. Um, the fifteen to thirty um, kilometre uh, ring jumped up to thirty two percent, and then it went down again thirty to forty five to twenty eight. But so did the overall listings numbers. That thirty to forty five k distance was uh, only 2700 so it's a very very low count which probably uh, coincides with uh, the geography of sydney i'm guessing yeah because Mm. i guess it's like rings of an onion isn't it but you know they get bigger and bigger and so as long as geography as in no rivers no mountains no you know (laughs) national park right no national park yeah so yeah um, but, uh, yeah, so I think that the focus would be more at the 0 to 15 versus the 15 to 30. There was a statistically significant difference mm. between the inner and outer ring, a lot less expired listings. So, therefore, yes, so it's if you draw the inference for that, it's quicker to sell property in the inner ring than it is in the next ring. But then that furthest ring... What was that percentage again? That, so was, we that talk- went up to 32. So that was about the same as that 15 to 30. So I think the 30 to mm-hmm. 45K, if we look at the map, we'll probably find some geographical reasons for that, yeah. rivers, rivers and stuff, yeah. um, the national parks. But um, 45 to 100, there was 3,489 total in the sam- sample. And of those, we found uh, 1,100 of them had uh, hit that 90-day mark. So, hundred. What, what's within that that you know that um, distance range? So you, you'd have Penrith, would you? Would you have, or is that within it? No, that'd be still closer than forty five k's. No, I is think it, Penrith is. I think that would be Penrith. Um, okay. So, yeah. I think Penrith is about fifty, maybe even sixty. Um, I think what oh, we were trying to think about. You think about Sydney. It's built on a coast, right? And so mm-hmm. you got from. Sydney CBD to Bondi, maybe six Ks, right? And so at best. Mm. And so, you know, you've got a bit longer than that. I think it's nine. (laughs) I think it's nine. nine. Is it? it It's 13 to four clues. I can tell you that. Yeah. Yeah, Okay. All right. Um, So, yeah, it's maybe by driving, but maybe not distance by the crow flies. um, (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, and so you've, yeah, you've only got half an onion, really, and then you've got the harbour, then you've got the national parks, etc. So um, what I think what I was asking you to do with that, Kent, was basically to show that on a big number, when you look at 17,000 listings in Sydney, I think it is. Um, is that right, Kent? Yeah, I'm uh, just going to mouse over the four cells and it's going to tell me 16,880. Yeah, and then when you take out apartments, which we know there's... Problems with investors. Oh, you know, more, this is just houses. Just houses, okay. And so then we're just trying to figure out how many of those 70,000 are sort of still hot and fresh in the inner ring of Sydney. And is there a lot of, you know, stock just sitting around? And what we basically found out is that 17,000 quickly dropped all the way down to 1,500 in the, you know, in our 15K ring, which that hasn't been sitting on the market for three months. And I'd argue a lot of the stuff sitting on the market for three months is, generally not great, you know, that's why yeah. it hasn't sold. And so um, it just shows that there's not that many properties for sale really in that inner 10, 15K ring of mm-hmm. Sydney uh, in the housing market. And um, when you compare it to this big number, you're like, oh, there's still quite a lot of properties out there, but once you cut it up, um, there's not that many available. Yeah, it's transacting. Yeah. But also be interesting, you know, over time just to see how that, that the expired listings proportion changes, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. I think as the market gets softer, we see those. Uh, we see an increase, obviously, uh, mm. in, in expired listings. So, and equally, I think it's 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 a symptom of unrealistic expectations. Kent, a monthly anomaly. Do you have one? Yeah, my monthly anomaly uh, is the uh, inner city areas where effectively we've got so few houses. So it's very hard to measure the housing market for these uh, inner city or inner, inner Melbourne or inner Sydney or inner Adelaide because the count of houses is so very low, yet it's swamped. It's swamped by all these other negative variables, which are high vacancy rates, high listings over 21 days, which is you know, part of that same metric, but equally very, very high inventory levels for, for apartments. So 
that's the big challenge. And obviously, there's a lot of them are zoned differently and they're being sought after by property developers. So uh, the anomaly or problem that I've got is they're very, very tough. Um, it's a tough market to measure, houses in the inner ring. And the vacancy rates, I mean, you pull it apart, right? Units versus houses? Well, I, I roll them together because of that. the problem with the census and what they do is I'm trying to measure how many properties are uh, managed by a real estate agent. So managed, rented via a real estate agent is my baseline metric. What the census does is it splits it to units, but then it rolls in townhouses and row houses and terraces into to one and, and, so, and then houses. So how do I split that middle bracket? Because when you're measuring or looking at listings, um, townhomes are typically thrown into the unit bucket. So yeah. I, put them all, I put them all into the one. Um, it makes sense for some things, but it causes me some challenges on, on other things. Right, it's the the trials and tribulations of the data geek. Yeah. <laughs> now, last month, Chris promised to share the latest lending and mortgage stats with us. So, what do you got to tell us about that, Chris? So, there's a few sources that I like to look at. So, ABS every month released lending data. It's a little bit delayed, so they only just released the July numbers. Um, you know, the RBA does some beautiful graphs every month, which kind of give you a really good understanding of what's happening. Um, AFG, which is probably the arguably the biggest mortgage aggregator, it is definitely going to be not in distance future. They're buying the other biggest one. So they're going to be this sort of uh, massive aggregator. Um, they do a quarterly index. The next one comes out in October. So there's lots of ways you can figure out what's happening with the lending market, but they are generally a little bit delayed. So you're going to be two or three months behind what's actually happening. Um, the interesting thing, though, if you look at the June quarter, uh, generally there's about $5 billion a month of refinances, but it went well over $10 billion, maybe even $12 billion. So what happened in the lockdown, lots of people, there was lots of good deals, especially AMZ had this amazing deal, um, and there was a huge increase of refinances, usually something that's quite sticky. People just, you know, even though they know they can get a bit better deal on their mortgage, they just there's generally only a small portion you know, five billion out of say two trillion dollars of mortgages is just refinancing sort of every month. So it's and, not a big. What's interesting about that though, because I know that CBA and Westpac were having a bit of a war going on. They were offering sort of was it four grand yeah. a pop and um, to to move your mortgage to them. So there was quite a lot of competition in that space. Like you say, ANZ had a really good deal, but but. I was, I guess, observing, particularly on LinkedIn, for instance, the amount of brokers such as yourself really promoting, you know, this is a time to do it. And, of course, if no one's going to write a new loan, then that's a great way for brokers to keep busy, right? And so given that, what, 60% of people are using brokers, well, that those brokers have all got a database of, of people to go to to suggest this. So you know what I mean? Is it people saying, oh, now's the time to refinance my, you know, take advantage of these deals or is it actually brokers initiating a large proportion of this? Oh, I think it's a bit of, bit of both. When rates drop, people think, hang on a sec, maybe I should, you know, review my mortgage. You know, what happened? Did the banks not pass it on? How much did they pass on? So there's a greater awareness when rates are dropped and rates have sort of dropped to 0.25. So now, I think part of it was that. I think part of it was so much advertising from the banks, you know, like everywhere you looked, all the TV, the buses, et cetera, that, that awareness. And then you're right, like a lot of brokers were going, we need to get through this as well. Let's target our database. Let's see if we can get drum up more business. So those factors combined shifted refinances to a whole new level. Yet even the RBA, you know, um, Mr. Stevens was out there saying, you know, refinance your mortgage. Because they know when you do that, you reduce your expenses, um, you free up cash flow, which you can spend in the economy, and you lower your biggest expense, which is your mortgage interest. So that's what the government was even trying to say. Um, but also even the fixed rates, the, the fixed rate deals out in the marketplace um, were just so far below the variable rate. So it was an easy pitch for people to go, you know what, you could refinance and get this amazing fixed rate. So the thing is that the purchases are down massively. So... In the boom, you're getting, you know, maybe 22, 23 billion a month of sort of purchases, a lot more purchases than refinances, um, but that's only 17 billion at the moment. And so you can see there's a lot less activities, a lot less transactions compared to, you know, say in the boom. 
Um, and that, that lines up, you know, perfectly with listings. So not only is listings down, but sales volumes are down because of mortgages, you can see that. Um, the other thing as well is, uh, you know, you'll like to see when markets are really booming, you've got owner occupiers and you've got investors competing. Um, and that's the perfect storm. If you're ever going to sell a property, you'd want the investors wanting it. You want owner occupiers. You want downsizers who are cash buyers. Um, and so you have all these people who have, you know, different forces trying to compete for your property. Investors, are, you know, just aren't really in the market. You know, there's only roughly about $4 billion, $5 billion of transactions a month. Um, in the boom, it was over 10. So yeah. you can see there's half the number of um, money from investors. You know, it's a, not far off long-term averages, but, you know, it's, it's you know, if you think about, uh, you know, time and prices rising, investor lending still well under what it was, you know, eight, 10 years ago. So that's a really big story that investors aren't around. The interesting thing, uh, you know, for listeners is the major market share is dropping every year. Um, and a lot of that is because at the same time as um, the majors are losing market share, brokers are gaining market share. Um, and so that's one of the reasons why the, you know, in the Royal Commission, CBA try to kill brokers is because they knew that every year they're, they're losing their market share to smaller lenders like Macquarie or ING. Um, and so it's gone from about 80% to the majors to about 50%. Um, but then in this recent price war, um, yeah, the majors kind of, you know, went in all in with ANZ and CBA, et cetera. Um, and so they've got a bigger market share. But like you said, Veronica, um, broker market share now is around 60%. Now, just six, seven years ago, it was around, say, you know, maybe eight years ago, it was around 40%. Um, and maybe in eight years before that, it was 20% of loans were going through brokers. So you can see that the brokers are a lot of uh, driving this sort of more competition in the market. Chris, a question for you. So we've got uh, an increase in listings that are coming out of the rental space and being sold. So, you know, I did the analysis about six months ago and it was hovering around eight or 9% of every listing that I sampled then was an ex-rental. And now that's jumped up. I did the analysis last week. I think it was around 13% were ex-rentals. If, if the uh, investor space is dropping down, um, there's obviously a risk there that those properties won't cycle back into the rental pool at the same rate as before. So we could see a reduction in the rental pool, which could have a significant impact in the coming six to 12 months on the rental market. What are your thoughts on that? So what you're saying is that um, that hits the rental, they can't, high vacancy area, um, they try to rent it, uh, they can't rent it because there's 700 other apartments. So they go, well, let's sell it. And they yep. try to sell it and then no one wants it. Um, or you know, and there's no other investors want it, so the only person who's going to buy is the owner occupier. Yeah. So what you're saying is it potentially could create an undersupply in, that, in the future. Yeah, except that's my hypothesis. Except for the fact that they're selling it because they can't rent it. Well, and it, it, where it came from. So if, the, if if it's come out of the pool, which was student accommodation, mm -hmm. uh, overseas students, or if it's come out of the pool of Airbnb, um, then the risk is significantly lower. Um, mm. because it may, it may balance things out with that long-term space. But I've seen some interesting posts on, on, on LinkedIn uh, of late saying, hey, vacancy rates are going down. Uh, and with this uh, happening, i.e. the increase in sales of ex-rentals, could it get worse? And there's some evidence to say it might. It'll be geographically based, so we know that there's not a single market. We know that. But there's going to be some areas that are going to be rather, rather tough without investors coming in in increasing numbers. Yeah, 100%. So, you know, like the renters need a lot of houses or apartments to be built to keep rents down, right? And that's one of the benefits, uh, you know, if, if there's oversupply sort of thing, it is keeping rents down. You know, you can't just keep growing your population of the city without building new stock. Um, is that mean, is it an opportunity for listeners to sort of, hope for this under oversupply to go to undersupply and then push prices up. I think the problem is there's still a lot of buildings to still get completed. Like you can drive around these high supply areas and, you know, there's still lots of apartments and cranes around. So, okay. um, yeah. And so even if it's, there's all this new stock that hasn't even hit the market yet, that's going to be available for rent, that's going to be newer and better. Um, 
you know, than the stuff that's available. So, uh, yeah, I don't really, I th- whole oversupply than undersupply and the opportunity there, I just personally prefer to buy in an area that's always undersupply and uh, and never going to get more stock, right? So, well, like uh, many other heights. Yeah, but, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, Maryhill Heights, as an example, is a, is a great spot um, because you can't build any more there, right? Exactly. So you've got the right on the, the beach. Um, so no land left. So this has been a great chat because we've been able to broaden the conversation outside of those sort of the, the, the normal suspects, the usual suspects that we talk about all the time, the areas of oversupply and the impact and how COVID is really basically, uh, you know, that once the tide goes out and everyone's been swimming without their undies on gets seen. Um, and that's what COVID's doing in, in a lot of these areas of oversupply with investors have been actually buying stock that's investor stock rather than investor grade and all that sort of stuff. But today we've opened the conversation and, and looked at a lot of other aspects to what underlies uh, whether areas are doing very well or not, um, including the lack of water supply during a drought and what that can do to an area. So it just really just speaks to the importance of understanding the local dynamics. You know, you can top line it. And I think this is what your um, research is so important to help us sort of filter through and understand and then have these discussions at the local level that really gives us such incredible insights into what drives the property market across the country. So thanks, Ken. Another great chat. Thank you. Thank you, Ken. Looking forward to next next month. And as promised, uh, we're going to put a feature in the next month is looking at that um, the LMI security location guides. Um, and I think that will be rather telling as well in terms of a, a definitely is some historical insights into areas where the mortgage insurers are wanting to avoid. And let's face it, they've got actuaries all over the numbers on this stuff. So if they don't want to go there, I think individual buyers should definitely be very cautious. Now, thanks for listening. We'd love to hear your questions and feedback. Connect with us via the website or email us at questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. If you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or North Shore, my team and I can help you buy without regrets. Reach out via my website, gooddeeds.com.au. If you're looking to buy your first home, thinking of upgrading into a new one or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, my team love to carefully guide you on this journey and most importantly, get the finance right. Reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. If you're a first-home buyer and you don't want to miss a step with this most important purchase, join me on Wednesday nights at 7.30pm Sydney time on the Home Buyer Academy Facebook page for live Q&A. Check out the website, homebuyeracademy.com.au. Every month, my team hosts a webinar on what we are seeing at the banks, the best rates, changing policy and their service. We also share the latest insights we hear and read that are impacting the property market direction. Check out wealthful.com.au. Thanks for joining us. We'd love to see you again. And remember, don't be a dumbo.